So, church family, would you welcome with me Pastor Oscar Moreu. Well, good morning, First Baptist. one of the reasons why I like your city, okay? Um, it's because the weather behaves. It's not like the rest of the U.S. This city of San Francisco is the closest weather-wise to the city that I've grown up in in Nairobi because our temperatures, we sit on the equator, and so we don't have summer, we don't have winter. You know, the, it's, the sun rises at 6.30 every morning and sets at 6.30 every evening. It's 12 hours of daylight and 12 hours of night because we're on the equator. And uh, our temperatures, the coldest we ever get, which is only for one month in the year, goes, the temperature goes down to 60 degrees. That's the coldest we ever get. And the hottest we ever get, the warmest we ever get, is 85 degrees. And so we're living in a little heaven. <laughs> and San Francisco's the cold, closest we get to in the U.S. to the weather and the temperatures of our country of uh, Kenya in Nairobi. Um, Nairobi sits about 6,000 feet above sea level, and so it's high up, and you know, for that reason, it's not hot, it's not humid, it's just lovely, and that's what I've seen in the two times that I've visited this city, and it's a joy to be here with you. But I also want to celebrate the fact of this church and what God is doing here, the wonderful story of God's redemption um, here in the city of San Francisco, and the story of this church. I can't even begin to imagine what 170 years of service to the Lord look like. We got independence about 60 years ago. And so you have a very short history when it comes to the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in our country. We've only had the gospel for about 100, 120 years. And this church is older than the church in uh, Kenya, in the whole of Kenya. And so to be here, I wish I could be here next week. I won't, but I wish I could be there to celebrate 170 years. Wow. I hope you have a great time together as you celebrate. Well, I want to turn to the word of the Lord, and I've titled my message today, Live by Asking All of Us Not Safe. I want to begin by asking all of us a question. Are the things that you are living for worth Christ's dying for? What an incredible question to ask. Who can ever know whether the things they're living for are worth dying for? Indeed, why did Christ die? Well, Paul answers that question for us in, in verse 14 of the passage that was read to us from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. And he says in verse 14, and I'm reading in the, in the New International Version, Christ's love compels us because we are convinced that one died and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves, but for him who died for them. Now we may ask the question, not live for myself? 
We hardly know anyone who doesn't live for themselves. In fact, this has become the biggest goal in my life, to look out for number one. We make our choices through the lens of what furthers my goals and fulfills me and my passions, but rarely, if ever, do we ask the question of what furthers God's goals. Our biggest goal is to pursue my dreams at whatever cost, climbing up the career ladder to find personal happiness, whatever it takes. We live for ourselves, so much so that even when it comes to our faith, we are no different. It has become true that even for our basic, normal Christian life, this this self-centeredness is a reality. When I share Christ with somebody, I want to tell them what God can do for them. When I go into a bookstore to buy a book, I want to buy a book that tells me how God will bless my marriage, how he will bless my career, how he will help me make my resources grow. I want a book that tells me how God can do this for me and he can do that for me. And my dear friends, God can because he wants to be intensely involved in blessing your life. But the purpose of your life does not revolve around yourself. Sometimes we act as though Christ belongs to us. As though I am the center of the universe and the world revolves around me. Well, I have news for you, my brothers and sisters. God isn't interested in fulfilling your goals for your life. He wants you to fulfill his goals for your life. Christ died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. In John chapter 12 and verse 41, Jesus was talking to his disciples. Verse, chapter 12 and verse 24, he was talking to his disciples and he told them these words. Unless a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains by itself. But if it dies, then it bears much fruit. Now, can you imagine with me a farmer going to his tilled land and he's about to cast out the seed and to sow the seed so that he can get a harvest and a crop. And as he's about to cast that seed, the the one seed in his hand cries out, leave me alone, leave me alone. I don't want to be put to the ground, leave me alone. If this lesson comes home unless it dies. And this lesson comes home again and again and again. In the very next verse in 25, verse 25, Jesus goes on to tell his disciples, the man who loves his life will lose it, while the man who hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me. And where I am, my servant also will be. And my father will honor the one who serves me. God says, it is the one who lays down his life, the one who takes up his cross, to whom I will disclose myself. My dear friends, only in dying to self can we live. When the Apostle Paul in Philippians 
chapter 3, verse 7 to 9, wrote and said, Whatever was to my profit, I now consider loss for the sake of knowing Christ. And what is more, I consider everything a loss compared to the surpassing greatness of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord for whose sake I have lost all things. Indeed, I consider them rubbish. That I may gain Christ and be found in him. Paul knew what he was talking about. Because you see, he had been that seed that had been put to the ground, that had been broken open, that had borne fruit, and now to the glory of God could be a fragrance, an aroma for Christ. Someone once said, no great advances have been made for Christianity by men and women who were unwilling to die for themselves. Let me say that again. No great advances have been made for the kingdom of God, have been made for the cause of Christ, have been made for the spread of the gospel by men and women who are unwilling to lay down their lives. Now we may ask, lay down my life? We can hardly give up a TV show that we know is not honoring to the Lord. Give up my life? Why is it this way, my dear friends? I believe it is because we have never settled in our hearts that I do not live for myself anymore. For Christ's love compels me that those who live should no longer live for themselves, that those who live should no longer live for their careers, that those who live should no longer live for their comforts, that those who live should no longer live for their security or their goals or their desires or their passions, but that they should live for him who died for them. One of the reasons why we can't live for him today is because we want to live the safe and the comfortable life but when my greatest desire is to live safe and comfortable, then I will not risk my time. I will not risk my comforts. I will not risk my career. I will not risk my retirement. I will not risk my wealth to pursue after the things that move the heart of God. And you know what? It's also been said that it is possible to evade a multitude of sorrows by cultivating an insignificant life. Listen to what Gary Hagan of the International Justice Mission says, and I quote him, he says this, here's a choice that our Father wants us to understand as Christians, and I believe that this is a choice of our age, do you want to be brave or safe? Because you cannot be both. Doing God's will in a fallen world is inherently dangerous. In fact, he goes on to say, if following Christ doesn't feel dangerous right now, you should probably pause and check to see if it's actually Jesus that you're following. Let me put that in simple 
layman's language. This is what he's saying. If you haven't met the devil recently, you're probably walking in the same direction. Can you imagine if Jesus had said to God the Father in heaven, Father, I am ready to go down to earth and to redeem humanity, to redeem mankind. But can I ask you one question before I go? And the father tells him, yes, my son, you can ask your question. What is your question? And Jesus says, well, I just wanted to know, is it safe? And the father would have had to tell, me, tell him, no, my son, it is not safe. Immediately you are born, men will come hunting for you to put you to death. Innocent babies will be killed as a result. You will have to go into hiding as a refugee to Africa. And when you return, there will be a whole institution set up to remove you and to silence you. You, they will try and stone you. They will try and throw you over a cliff. They will shame you and ridicule you. And eventually they will catch you and whip you and spit on you and crucify you. Nails will be driven through your hands and your feet. And you will die one of the most excruciatingly painful deaths known to mankind. No, my son, it is not safe for you to go but will you go anyway? You see, Jesus didn't try and play it safe. He lived brave for the glory of God. The disciples themselves did not try and play it safe. They were beaten up. They were persecuted. They were imprisoned. But for all the pain and the suffering they went through, never ever do you read in the scriptures the disciples praying and saying, Father, it's too much. It's too much. We can't bear it anymore. Never. Instead, their words are captured. Their prayer is captured in Acts chapter 4 verse 29. This was their prayer. Lord, consider their threats. And enable your servants to speak your word with greater boldness. In other words, if they persecute us at this level, Lord, give us greater boldness so that we will continue to speak in spite of the suffering. If they raise the level of persecution, raise our bravery. Give us greater boldness that we will not remain silent. Never. Paul himself did not try and play it safe. He writes in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 and verse 23 to verse 27, I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged severely, been exposed to death again and again. Five times I received from the Jews the 40 lashes minus one. I have been constantly on the move. I have been in danger from rivers, in danger from bandits, in danger from my own countrymen, in danger from Gentiles, in danger in the city, in danger in the country, in danger at sea, and in danger from false brothers. I have labored and toiled and have gone without sleep. I have known hunger and thirst and have often gone without food. I have been cold and naked. He did not play it safe. But he lived brave for the cause of Christ. Where living brave means obedience, 
no matter what the cost. Where living brave means taking a step of faith outside of my comfort zone. Where living brave means trusting God for the unknown. Where living brave means not demanding that I first know all the details about what God is doing in my life before I am willing to sign on and to obey. Where living brave means that God doesn't have to explain himself to me about what he's doing in my life. I will obey even when I don't know and don't understand what he's doing. Where living brave means that God doesn't have to ask my permission before he does a hard commission, calls me to a hard commission in my life. Because you see, my brothers and sisters, if God has to ask your permission, then he is not God. You are. Because he has to ask for your permission. I don't want to serve a teeny weeny little God who comes to me and says, oh, Oscar, pretty please, can I, can I just touch your life with a little bit of suffering for just a day or two, please? I don't want to serve a small God like that. I want to serve the God I read about in the scriptures, in the Bible, in Psalm chapter 115 and verse 3, where it says, our God is in heaven and he does whatever pleases him. He doesn't ask for permission. But if your greatest desire in life is to live safe, then you will never know the great things of God. Many of us here like to quote the passage in Philippians chapter 2 and verse 22. And indeed, that's what the baptism today symbolized. I have been crucified with Christ. And we quote these words with deep sentiments on our heart, with our voice choking up, maybe tears streaming down from our eyes. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who lives, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself up for me. Well, let me tell you something about people who have been crucified. Let me tell you about something about people who have been buried in Christ. I could go to the local hospital here and go down into the basement to the mortuary, the morgue where they, they keep the bodies of those who have died. And I could pull out one of the trays, you know, where they keep the mice go, pull out a tray, whip a gun from my back pocket, hold it to the head of this body, this man who lies on this tray and tell him, do you know I can shoot you right here, right now? Doesn't flinch. Because dead men have no fear. And they're not afraid. And I can pull out a metal rod and beat and beat and beat this body. It doesn't flinch, never cries out. For dead men have no fear. May I suggest that for many of us, we did not really die in Christ. We only fainted. And so... We look dead, but when suffering and pain comes our way, we wake up and we run. <laughs> because we're driven by fear. 
One of the biggest problems in the church today is that we have far too many Christians in church and not enough disciples. You see, everybody calls themselves a Christian nowadays. Everybody. Why am I a Christian? Because, well, my mother was a Christian, my father was a Christian, so I guess I'm a Christian. And when the census is taken, you tick the box. Why am I a Christian? Well, my mother told me I have to go to church every Sunday because that's a right social thing to do, so I'm a Christian. Why are you a Christian? Because I heard that's where you get a good girl. That's where you get a good young man to marry. And so I went to church and I became a Christian. I'm a Christian because that's where my parents wanted me to be on Sunday. Too many Christians, but not enough disciples. There's an anecdotal story told about a church in China. In the middle of persecution, they were not allowed to gather together and to worship God in a country that professed that there is no God and that they are atheists. And so this little church would gather every Sunday. And when they met together, say, at 10 o'clock in the morning, they would begin arriving at 6 a.m., one at a time, never in a crowd, no more than two people at a go. And they would quietly step into the doorway of the church, enter the church, and wait for the others to gather. Just 20 or 30 people. And when they worshipped, they whispered their worship so that they would not be heard outside of the confines of the room they were in. And when they prayed, they prayed in a low voice. They preached in a low voice. But one Sunday, as they were in the middle of their service, you know, and they had all gathered, the door opened and four policemen walked in with guns. Two of them stood at the back and the other two came to the front of the church and they stood in front of the little crowd that was there and they cocked their rifles and they said, anyone here who believes in Jesus Christ, remain seated. The rest of you, leave. And there was a mad scramble to the back door as people shoved and pushed to get out of the building. And only a small handful of them came to the front and stood. And the two soldiers at the back shut the doors, locked them, came to the front and stood with the other two at the front. And the leader of the four said to the pastor who was still there, Pastor, now we can worship God. You see, all the Christians left, but the disciples remained. Now turn to your neighbor and ask them, would you be inside or outside if this happened here? Where would you be? Would you stay or would you leave? You see, there are too many Christians and not enough disciples because a disciple will lay down his life for Christ because he is compelled, as Paul says in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14, that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for all so that those who live should no longer live for themselves but for him who died for them. One of my heroes of faith is a man whose story I read many years ago as a very young Christian. And some of you probably recognize his name. His name was George Mueller, lived in Bristol. He's known for the orphanages that he started to take in children and care for orphans. But this is the story of George Mueller. George was born in 1805. As a young man, by his own confession, he was a scoundrel and a rascal, 
at the age of 14 when his mother passed away, George was not by her bedside as she drew in her last breath. He was out on the streets with his playmates drunk. And his father was so frustrated with this unreformed young man that he took him, he whooped him, and he sent him off to the rural area to go and reform. But even kicking George out of the city into the rural area did not reform George. And his father, in his frustration, decided, you know, this young man of mine, what I need to do is send him to university and let him train to become a minister of the church. Because at least there he'll get some sort of income and food. I don't know what the guy was thinking. What are you saying about us pastors when you say that about a scoundrel <laughs> and a rascal like this? So he shipped him off to university and George went. The very first night that George was at university, a friend of his, somebody that he knew came along and said, George, there's a couple of us who get together and we study the Bible. Can I invite you to come for that? And I guess George, maybe because he didn't have anything else to do, said, yeah, I'll come. And he did. He went that evening. And for the first time ever, he encountered the risen Lord Jesus. And he gave his life over to Christ. One of the first things that George saw as he began to grow as a Christian was how so many Christians do not live the life of faith. He observed and despaired to see that many are troubled and filled with tremendous anxiety because they don't fully trust in Christ. They don't really believe that God can watch over them and take care of them. And so George made a decision. This deeply impacted him, and he determined to do something about it. And so he wrote in his own words, and so I, a poor man with no money, have decided by prayer and faith alone to start an orphanage to provide shelter for the little children who live on the streets of Bristol. This was pre-industrial England, when, where all the factories were, you know, um, run on coal. And so these coal stacks would belch out their black soot and the whole of industrial England, the cities, Manchester and Leeds and London and all these other big cities were gray and dark and filled with soot. And there were many children that would roam the streets because they had no parents. The death rate as a result of all this smog and soot was that adults died young. The children would fall out and would have no one to look after them. They slept under bridges. They slept in doorways. They froze to death in the cold winters of the north. And nobody seemed to care for them. And George Mueller decided, I will care for these children. And I will clothe them and feed and house them without ever asking anyone for a single penny. God will have to show that he can provide and care for them. I thought George Mueller started those orphanages because he loved children. No, 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 no. He started them as a testimony of the fact that God can care for his people. And he went on to say, it is my hope that I will in this way strengthen the faith of God's children and will also provide a testimony to show those who know God that he is faithful and that he can care for them. For 50 years, George looked after these children. 
1836, when he was just a mere 30 years old, he took in 30 orphaned girls into his home and started to provide for them. But 30 was not the measure of his desire and love to care for these children. And so he began to pray that God would give him a place for the children. And by prayer alone, never ever asking anyone for a single shilling, a single dollar, a single penny, a single cent, George built five large orphanage houses that could host about 400 children each, 2,000 children capacity. Over his life, he cared for a total of 10,024 children, never asking for food, for money, for anything. His example changed England. At the time he began this work, there were only 3,600 beds in the whole of England for these orphan children. But so many people were inspired by his testimony and his example that they began to open up their houses. They began to build orphanage houses. And 50 years later, at the time he was standing apart from this work, the number of beds in England for orphans had risen to 100,000 orphans. Through his life, it is estimated that he prayed in the equivalent of about a hundred million US dollars without ever asking anyone for money. He established 117 schools, educated a total of 120,000 children, and when he turned 70, as though he had not done enough and was now ready for retirement, he passed on the work of the orphanages to others. And he himself pursued a dream that he'd always had but never had the opportunity to invest in. He wanted to go and preach the gospel to other lands. He visited a total of 42 nations around the world, preached to what is estimated to be about 3 million people over the next 17 years, and finally passed away at the age of 87 years. It was said of his time with the children, that there would be times when they would come into the dining halls and there was no food in the pantry. And George would tell the children, children, let's clasp our hands together, let's bow our heads, let's shut our eyes and give thanks, not ask for, give thanks to the Lord for the meal he will provide. And the children would do that. And even as they say the amen, there would be a knock on the door and the local butcher or the milkman or even the baker would say, God woke me up at 3 a.m. this morning and he told me to break, bake bread and bring it to you. One story is told of how the, the local milkman with his cart full of milk, the wheels fell off his cart right in front of the door of the orphanage. And so he knocked and said, I can't get my milk into town before it goes to waste. So would you like milk? And the children had just said, amen. Thank you, Lord, for the breakfast. Why is George Mueller my hero? Because he emboldens me to live the brave life and not to play safe with God. He's my hero because he was willing to step out and take risks. He's my hero because he believed God for the impossible. And therefore, God went ahead and did the impossible. Maybe you're here today 
And you have been playing safe with God. And as you hear me since, your heart is deeply convicted by 2 Corinthians chapter 5 and verse 14. For Christ's love compels us that one died for all and therefore all died. And he died for me so that I would no longer live for myself, but live for him who died for me. And your heart is deeply convicted because you know that you've been living for yourself. You've been living for your career. You've been living for that cushy retirement. You've been living for comfort's sake. And you have not lived for Christ, even though you call yourself a Christian. And even as I speak, I know that the Spirit of God is in this place. And for some of us, you have felt God tapping you on the shoulder and saying to you, this is for you. Hear me. This is my word. This is my desire for your life. Stop living for yourself and start living for me. I want us to come to a time of prayer. I'm going to invite Pastor Ryan to come up in a minute and lead us in prayer. But if you're here and you just know that God spoke to you, and as you look at your life, you know that you need to stop living for yourself and start living for him. That there needs to be a turnaround in your life. I don't know what it is that God is saying you need to do, but, but you feel the conviction of God. Could I just ask that you'd rise to your feet as your way of saying, Lord, I hear you. I'm here. I hear you. And I want to live for you. I want to stop being the self-focused center of the universe, my life. I want to live for you. Just, just rise to your feet. Just rise to your feet. Amen. Thank you. Thank you for those many Thank you. Thank you for your obedience. But you know, guys, even as others stand to their feet, I want to make a second call because I want to believe that there are people here that God has been tapping on the shoulder to give up their career, to give up their dreams, to give up the things that they have desired to build for themselves and become ministers of the gospel, to walk away from that life that they wanted for themselves and to serve the Lord in full-time ministry. In a very little while, you know this, I know this, you're meeting this afternoon for this purpose, Pastor Ran will be leaving us. And we may hunt all over the U.S. for somebody else to come and serve in this church. But you know what God says in Matthew chapter 9 and verse 37? He says, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Finding men and women of God who will serve God with dedication is very difficult. Why? Because the laborers are few. And God has been tapping you on your shoulder. I want you to be one of those laborers. And you're fighting that, and you're trying to drown out God's voice. You're doing everything you can to busy yourself, to, you know, have so much noise around you that you drown out the, noise, the voice of God, because you don't want to do this. But God's been tapping you on your shoulder. That's my story. I was a Jonah 
who run away from God when I heard him calling me to leave the cushy career that I wanted to build. I was studying in university, a Bachelor of Science in Zoology. I wanted to go and, you know, go into the market, begin an industry based on the science that I was studying that would make me rich and wealthy. And God tapped me on the shoulder. Matthew chapter 9 and verse 37, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. And when I first read that, because I was 22 years old, in my final year in university, when I first ever read that, I said, God, how true this word is. What have you been doing all this time? 22 years, I didn't know you existed. I didn't know about salvation. Where were you? You need to get your act together, God. You know, you need to send out more people to tell the world about. And, And God said, can I send you? I said, no, 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 God, I've got my life together. I know I am going in my life. Find somebody who doesn't know what to do with their life and send them. And God said again, can I send you? And I said, no, God, are you, you know, soft in the head? Don't you hear? I said, no, not me. I've got my act together. Find someone else. And God said, can I send you? And every morning when I woke up, he said, can I send you? Can I send you? And finally I decided, I'm done reading the Bible. It's just too convicting. I don't want to read this word anymore. And I stopped. And I ran. I was a student in India for my undergraduate in the University of Delhi. And I ran off to Shimla, up in the mountains in the Himalayas, because it was summer, it was hot, I wanted the cool weather. And I went up there, thinking I can get away from God and this convicting question of whether I would rise up to the challenge of ministry and missions. And one day I was sitting at a little tea cafe, having a morning cup of tea. And I saw an Indian man dressed in saffron robes, walking up and down the square in Shimla, where the bands would come out and play. And he was staring straight into the sun. And then he would walk backwards, staring into the sun, And as he passed by me, I looked into his face and I could see his eyes were bloodied and red, tortured by looking into the sun. Tears had dried around them. And I asked the waiter who was serving me, what is this man doing? Doesn't he know that he can go blind, staring into the sun like that? And the waiter rather nonchalantly told me, oh, he's a holy man. I said, what do you mean he's a holy man? What? And he told me that man has committed himself to stare into the sun. Morning after morning, he comes here and walks up and down the whole day. And he's committed himself to do this until God reveals himself to him. And as I sat there, I thought, I know God. I'm running away from God. I don't want to be sent away from my dreams to go and tell people like these who are willing to lose their eyesight to find God. I don't want that job. And it was there that the Lord broke my heart and I said, Lord, I will serve you. I'll give up my dreams, I will step out and I will serve you. And I want to believe that there are those two, three, four, five here that God has been trying to tap you on the shoulder and tell you, put aside the career. This is my call over your life. Remember, I died for you so that those who live should no longer live for themselves And if you're here today and that's you, as Pastor Ryan comes up now to pray with us and for us, can I ask you to just make your way to the front here? If you know that God is calling you to give it up and serve him as a minister of the gospel, whether it's with children, with youth, with adults, as a pastor, as a missionary, whatever it is, would you come right here to the front 
and allow us to pray with you. And even for those of you upstairs, make your way down and just come up to the front. And in a moment, Pastor Ryan will pray with us and for us. Anyone here, just come up to the front here and allow us to pray with you and for you. No one is too young. No one is too old to say yes to the call of God. And he may send you to other countries or he may send you to the next neighborhood. God knows, you know what he's going to do. Just come up to the front as your sign of submission. Anyone that just feels that God is calling you to leave behind the dreams, the desire of a life that is the good life, the American life, and instead live the kingdom life, the heavenly life. 